So today we are launching a, a new preaching series called I Know You By Name. And often when we use this, this, this phrase in Christian terms, we talk about God knowing us by name. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, God knows you by name. He knows everything about you. He knows how many hairs there are on your head. Some of you men are thinking, well, there's a few less than there used to be. Um, but he knows every single detail about your lives. And that's wonderful and something that we want to champion here in this church, that God knows our intimate details. But this series isn't about that. This series is about knowing God. It's about knowing him better. Because it's so important to get to know him. Because when we get to know him, we live differently, don't we? The more you understand about God and who he is and what his character and personality is like, the more you can trust him on a moment-by-moment -moment basis and rely instinctively upon who he is in your life. We want to learn to walk in trust of God's character. This is a mark of maturity in a believer. When... Uh, we have cultivated a deep trust in God because we've got to know him and what he's like. We understand how he works and what he usually likes to do in any given situation. I love the way the Gospels record this maturing process in the disciples. So Jesus' followers are constantly panicking. They just love the way the Gospels record the panicking moments of the disciples. It just brings comfort to all of us. Yeah. That we all have a little wobble sometimes. They're often overwhelmed with new challenges and they're slow to understand that God is present and that he's also consistent. That he's going to do the same today that he did yesterday. If God loved the person, if Jesus loved the person who was in front of him yesterday, he's going to do the same today. And we can learn what God is like. So he doesn't call them to quit their jobs and come follow him and then leave them to struggle with the tax man. He provides as he goes forward. He doesn't uh, have someone come up to him and say, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. To watch him stretch out his hand and touch the leper and watch the leprosy disappear from their body. He doesn't do that yesterday and then today say, well, do you know what? I don't feel like healing yet leprosy today. He doesn't do that. He's consistent. He's faithful. And he gets frustrated with his disciples when they don't trust him or they don't trust his father. And there's a, a wonderful moment where Jesus kind of loses his rag a little bit with his disciples because they're just not learning the lesson of who God is and how he likes to work. So turn to Mark and chapter 8. So the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. And they did this to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them and got back in the boat and crossed to the other side. 
So the disciples, so the Pharisees are constantly looking for fresh affirmations that he is who he is. They won't look at everything he's done today and yesterday and the day before that and all the testimonies surrounding Jesus and then believe. They want to see something fresh all the time. And the disciples, once they got in the boat, had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we've got no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Uh, Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? He's getting frustrated with his disciples. This is often broken up in our Bibles with separate subheadings. One to do with the Pharisees testing Jesus and another to do with Jesus uh, going on to, to calm a storm, actually. Um, but the two are linked. You see, the Pharisees just wanted constant affirmation, constant shows and displays of God's power and God's nature and God's character. They wanted, to, they wanted Jesus to prove himself continually. And yet Jesus, and he, Jesus said, I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to bow into that. And yet with the disciples, Jesus' expectation of them was completely different. You see, they had seen so much. They'd been there with the feeding of the 5,000. They'd been there with the feeding of the 4,000. And here they are, sat in a boat, debating amongst themselves why Jesus is upset with them because they've got no bread. Jesus is livid because he was like, were you not there? Do you not remember the crowd, the tiny packed lunch, and what happened? Do you really think I'm sat in this boat and I'm frustrated with you because you've got one loaf of bread? Thank you. Do you really think that's the issue? He expected them to have understood who he was and who, how he likes to operate and what was possible when Jesus was around. And he got really upset with them that they just would not accept who he was and what, who the Father was. Jesus expects every one of his disciples not just to have their needs met in the moment, but to learn his character and how he likes to work. To understand and trust in the personality of God. And it's by walking according to his personality and according to his revealed character that we can approach life in a different way. Our conversations become different. We don't start squabbling about whether we've got one loaf of bread or not because we understand he's a provider. Does that make sense? We settle something within ourselves and we understand that he loves to be him towards us. So Jesus didn't go around asking people to wait while he asked his father if he loved them enough to heal them or not. 
He didn't ask that question the same time, each time he met somebody with a need who came to him and said, would you be willing to heal me? He didn't have to pause and say, bear with me, I'm just going to ask my father whether this is the sort of thing he likes to do. <laughs> yep, he's going to heal you as well, you know. He didn't need to do that, he didn't need to hesitate in those moments because he knew that in his essence his father was a healer. He loved seeing people whole, so without hesitation he'd stretch out his hand and heal someone or he'd provide, or he would speak the word that would release a miracle. It's just what he did. Look, in any page of the Gospels, it was how he operated. It would have taken a word of the Holy Spirit in his ear to stop him to do it, from doing that, because that would have been the exception. So Jesus' faith and confidence and authority rested on his intimate knowledge of what the Father is like and how he loves to operate. John 5.19 says, I, I do only what I see the Father doing. So he, he had understood how the Father loves to be, what the Father's heart is, how he loves to operate in any given moment. And he just does that, and he does that, and he does that, and he does that, right through his ministry. And the, everything you see in Jesus' ministry is just him cooperating with how he knows the Father likes to be. Okay? He's expressing his Father's love. So when we feel faithless, or when we feel powerless or fearful, the problem is sometimes spiritual attack, but more often than not, the main problem is usually the lack of intimacy with the Father. If you feel fearful in your life, if you're anxious, if you're uh, feeling powerless, downtrodden, it's usually because you have not spent enough time with him to be reassured of his ways and his faithfulness over your life. Is that fair? Sometimes it comes as a bit of a double whammy where we feel fearful and distant from God at the same time. And that's really difficult. But the way to drive out fear, the way to begin to overcome in any situation the way to suddenly become a voice of faith and a voice of strength and a voice of reassurance is to spend more time with Father. Because there's something about being around him and reminding ourselves of what he's like that strengthens us to deal with the now, whatever we're facing. We remember what he's like and what he likes to do and we start to partner with him and his essence. So, how do we get to know God better? The first thing to remember is that we have a God who wants to be known. He's not an elusive or secretive God. He's not a God that hides from us and doesn't want us to understand him or spend time with us. The Lord has revealed his character and personality in a number of really key ways. And that's these. Firstly, in Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, it says in Colossians 1.15. And he also, Jesus also said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So just by spending time pouring over Jesus' life, understanding what he says and how he operates, we can understand so much about what God is like. So that's the first thing in Christ. The second thing is in his dealings with his people. So through the word of God, through the whole of the Bible, God reveals his character. That's Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament is incredibly valuable for understanding God's character. Thirdly, our own experience, 
we come to understand what God is like with how he deals with us and the journey that we take with God. And fourthly, it's through the experience of others and testimony. When we hear how God has dealt with another person, that something within us can reach a new understanding. We can grasp it for ourselves. Hey, that person just got released from their drug addiction. I'm starting to understand this is what God does. I can believe him for myself. That's how it works. So in this series, we're going to focus on number two. We're going to focus on how God has revealed himself in his word and how God has revealed himself through his dealings with his people. And one of the most powerful ways that God reveals his character and his nature in his word is through his names. Now that might sound a bit strange to some of us. What's in a name? Well, in scripture... Names are very important. And uh, I just want to read a little bit from John Mark Homer in this book, God Has a Name. John Mark writes this, In ancient writings like the Bible, a name was way more than a label you used to make a dinner reservation or sign up for a spinning class. (laughs) Your name was your identity, your destiny, the truth hidden in the marrow of your bones. It was a one-word moniker for the truest thing about you, your inner essence, your inner tomness, or roofness, or matness, or crispness. <laughs> Michael Knowles wrote in The Unfolding Mystery of the Divine Name, he said this, he said, in the world of Hebrew scriptures, A personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth, circumstances, or the divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fill. Names are revelatory of the very nature of a person in Scripture. So you see this theme happen right through Scripture. You see right from the very beginning that names are intertwined with the essence of the characters and their destiny. So, what does the name Abraham mean? Father of multitude or father of many nations. That pretty much nails his identity, wouldn't you say? Abraham, exalted father. Abraham, father of many nations. Okay, what about Jacob? Usurper, grabber, the one who grabs the heel. He was the one who grabbed the heel of his brother and tried to fight for his blessing. From the moment they were born, they were, they were tussling together, and he stole his brother's blessing. What does Israel mean? He became Israel, didn't he? The one who strives with God. So he, he wrestled, literally wrestled with God, and through this wrestling process in his life, he became this, this one that was able to bear the blessing of God. And then you see his descendants, the Israelites, being this whole nation of wrestles with God, but yet somehow still bears the blessing of God, and Christ comes through the Israelites. What about David? Anyone know what David means? Hmm? Beloved. Beloved or intimate friend. Doesn't that describe David's life and his relationship with his father? (coughs) Yeah. How amazing is that? Uh, Jesus. He who saves pretty much nails it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll rest my case. A name in scripture is synonymous 
with the person. So, God has so many names in Scripture, and you can get to know God better through all of his names as, as you can follow them through the Old Testament. Little by little, God reveals who he is, what he's like, what his personality is like, through sharing his names with various people in the Old Testament. So, in this series, we're going to focus on just a few of them. We've only got six Sundays, but we're going to have the whole massive list of God's names. We just said to the speaker team, just pick your favourite. Or pick one that you feel God wants to share about himself and bring it. Bring that. And so this morning we're going to start with one of God's names. We're going to start with this one. Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. This one is a little bit indirect. It's not one of the I am statements from God. I am Jehovah Nissi. It's actually a name that Moses gives to God at a certain moment in time. And the Lord, Yahweh, allows Moses to call him, the Lord is my banner. So we're going to look at it, turn to Exodus and chapter 17. And we're going to go from verse 8. So while the people of Israelites were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, Choose some men and go out and fight the army of Amalek for us, and tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of the nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. Whenever he dropped his hands, the Amalekites gained the advantage. So Moses' arms soon became so tired that he could no longer hold them up. And Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. They stood each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi, or Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. I love this story. Because... From the perspective of Amalek, all Moses is doing is holding up a stick on a hillside. It doesn't look like anything. It just looks like a little old man holding up a stick on the side of a hill. And yet, for the Israelite army, this was the most powerful thing that anybody could do. Now, banners were used in Moses' day. And as far as how banners were used in Moses' day, this stick looked pretty pathetic. What kind of banner is that? <clears throat> banners were created in Moses' day to be very colourful, very big, very bold, and they were used in a number of different ways. What were banners used for? Number one, identity. When a dignitary was riding into uh, 
another country or another city, uh, often they would, what would go before them was their banner. It would show who they were, it would show their importance, it would show who uh, they belonged to, so they would have some sort of crest. And, you know, you see that sort of same thing all over the world and all throughout history. You see it in all of the ancient bat battles in our country, that people arrive with banners, with the symbols on them, with crests, and it actually brings some kind of kudos and strength to the, to the dignitary. They were also used for the celebration of victories won. So when back, uh, armies had won battles and they rode back into their cities, there would be banners lining the streets and lining the banqueting halls to celebrate that the, the army had won the victory. So it was a kind of big, colourful celebration thing. I guess a bit like we use, you know, bunting or something like that. And then thirdly, they were used for rallying people for battle. Colourful flags held high to increase the impact of the charge and a strong visual encouragement to keep going. As long as the banner is flying, we'll keep fighting. So there are elements of all these things in this story in Exodus 17. When Moses raises the staff, the people first remembered their identity. They remembered whose they were. They remembered who they were as a people, who was with them and who was for them, and everything that God had done. The Lord himself was present in their midst. Secondly, they remembered the victories won. They'd just come out of Egypt. They've just seen the mighty Egyptian empire overthrown by the power of God coming through this staff. So as Moses holds this symbol of the power of God above his head, they remember that God has already fought on their behalf and delivered them, not once, but several times. And they've come through the Red Sea, they've ended up in this place, Rephidim, there's no water there. Moses uses this same stick to strike the rock, the water comes out, God is delivering them again and again and again. Moses holds the stick of deliverance up, it means a huge amount to the Israelites. So it is a celebration of victories won. And though they, the Israelites were not warriors, they were herdsmen and builders, they weren't warriors, and the armies, the warriors of Amalek were notorious because they were a warring nation. These were like seasoned warriors. They, they had, had to remember that God was with them, and as long as that, that stick was held high, they could keep moving forward, even though the odds were massively against them, against Amalek. And because they were filled with confidence and passion with the stick of God held high, they kept moving forward and against the odds they survived. They learned to trust God a little bit more that day. They were able to understand. He's fought for us before. He's fought for us today. And I know that he will fight for us tomorrow. The next time I see the enemy line up, I'm going to feel different because I've got this victory under my belt. I've got this understanding of God. I've got this experiential knowledge now with me in my spirit. So next time I face the same situation, I'm gonna face it differently. I'm gonna have faith. Are you with me? You see the maturing process. So Moses learned that day that the Lord was his banner. He learned an important spiritual principle that the Lord cares about where we place our trust. Every time he drops the staff, they started to lose. Every time he raised his staff, they started to win. 
when he was putting his trust in God, when he was saying, God, I'm going to hold you out over this battle, they started to win. God cares where we place our trust. And he cares what we do with the knowledge that we have of him. So he learned this important spiritual principle. The Lord cares about where we place our trust. He moves in power as we visibly and unashamedly hold out what God has done for all to see. And the people of God are empowered when one person of faith stands up and stands out for God. Is that true? That's the truth about God that I want us to embrace today. So I'm going to say it again just so it can sink in. The Lord cares about where we place our trust. He moves in power as we visibly and unashamedly hold out what God has done for all to see. And all of us, the people of God, are empowered when one person of faith stands up and stands out for God. This has been true throughout church history. There's been times when the people of God have been trembling in fear until one person who has cultivated a deep trust in who God is stands up and starts declaring the power and the goodness of God over a situation. And it's amazing how a whole host of people can just ignite in faith and start to believe for God to do something new. The Lord wants to be the banner of your life. I think there's not enough boldness in the church at the moment. Too many Christians are pressured to take down their banners and watch as the battle is lost and the family of God is consumed. Where are the ones that are raising their voices for him? Reminding God's people of who he is and all that he's done and empowering the church to win the nation. Our voice seems quite quiet at the moment, wouldn't you agree? There's not many of those. Yet God has revealed himself to be faithful to stand with anyone who will stand for him. Jesus said something very challenging for me in this area, and I want to share it with you, and I hope that it hits you between the eyes. He said this, he said, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. There's no such thing as a private Christian. There's no such thing as someone who has a private devotion to the Lord. That's an oxymoron when it comes to the Christian faith. If we confess him, if the Lord is the clear banner of our lives, he endorses us in heaven. If we hide our faith and we take down our banner, if we are ashamed to be identified with him, He is ashamed to be identified with us. And the church of Jesus Christ becomes easy pickings for the enemy. That's Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So on the positive, if you raise your banner for God, just watch what God can do. There are so many important moments in history when God's people have stood for him and seen victories like Moses did. How many of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? A shining example of someone who was able to hold out his banner of being a man of God 
and trusting in the word of God and trusting in the character of God in unimaginably pressured circumstances. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'll read his story, but um, he was a pastor in the time of the rise of the Nazis and Hitler coming to power in Germany. So he had that kind of pressure on his faith and to take his banner down under the rise of this new regime. So Bonhoeffer graduated from the University of Berlin in 1927 at the age of 21 and then spent his early years serving as a pastor and lecturing at the University of Berlin. During these years, Hitler rose in power, becoming Chancellor of Germany in January 1933 and President a year and a half later. Hitler's anti-Semitic rhetoric and actions intensified, as did his opposition, which including the likes of theologian Karl Barth and the young Bonhoeffer. Together with other pastors and theologians, they organised the Confessing Church, which announced publicly in its Barman Declaration in 1934 its allegiance first to Jesus Christ. That took some doing at that time, I can tell you that. It says, we repudiate the false teaching that the church can and must recognise yet other happenings and powers, personalities and truths as divine revelation alongside this one word of God. In the meantime, Bonhoeffer had written The Cost of Discipleship in, in 1937, a call to more faithful and radical obedience to Christ and a severe rebuke of comfortable Christianity. In that book, he said, Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Amazing words. Eventually his resistance efforts, mainly his role rescuing Jews, was discovered. And on April, on an April afternoon in 1943, two men arrived in a black Mercedes and put Bonhoeffer in the car and drove him to, to Tigel prison. After two years in prison, responding, corresponding with family and friends, pastoring fellow prisoners and reflecting on the meaning of Jesus Christ for today, Bonhoeffer was transferred from Tegel prison to, I think you pronounce it, Buchenwald, and, and then to the extermination camp at Flossenburg. On April 9th, 1945, one month before Germany surrendered, he was hanged with six other resistors. A decade later, a camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's hanging described the scene. The prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of, of court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, he said, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. It's difficult to imagine the pressure that Bonhoeffer must have experienced to take his banner down. 
And yet because he refused and relied heavily upon God, many Jews were rescued. Pastors were strengthened to care for their churches. Prisoners found the Lord and the Nazi government was challenged. Countless Christians around the world have been inspired by his writings and all because he refused to deny his faith or privatize his trust in God. His banner was clear under the most difficult circumstances. And I would love to have been there to watch him welcomed into the courts of his master. The celebration of the banners of heaven as Bonhoeffer came home. I want to encourage us all to learn to trust God in the same way. To be able to say with confidence, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is the banner of my life. I am not ashamed to be identified with him. To unashamedly hold God's faithfulness over injustice, over sickness, over temptation, over our families, over our schools and our workplaces, over our community. To hold out Jesus until the tides turn and the Lord is victorious. The Lord allowed himself to be called Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner so that we could know, so that we could know that we know that we know that we know that as we stand for him, he will fight for us. And who knows? Maybe your faith might just empower somebody else. As people see you and how you live your life and how you hold out Christ above your life in all circumstances. Maybe you might empower someone else to do the same. Maybe they will take their stand too.